Blog like Talk video. Radio. This is All About Wine, the talk show dedicated to the wine industry since 2009. Featuring winemaker, cellar master, vineyardist, and tasting expert, Ron. Basically, what we're trying to do on this program is just trying to educate people and trying to make wine less confusing and more friendly. From coast to coast and around the world. You know, we really have had some some neat people on the program. I, I just, I love that. You know, I was just thinking... If we did do like a live video feed, like showing, you know, where we're at or something, I know you probably wouldn't do it, but I, I would, I would kind of be open to it. I'd like to have like a, like a big production studio background, just static, so it looks like I'm actually in a big time, <laughs> you know, something like the NFL users or something. You know, yeah, I could the do the green screen. Green screen. Yeah, yeah green screen. I, and I have a green. I have several green screen uh, things, yeah, but yeah. to find a backdrop. But yeah, absolutely. I, I had that for the uh, when I was doing well, I was trying to do photography stuff. Um, but um, you can put in any background you want. Where do you want to be? France? Okay, good. Let me let me roll it up. We are live France, in France. Thing. France. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, just have have like 150 monitors behind me, so it looks like it. And they and then the people out there. Your questions and comments during the live show on our Facebook page. They could they could look at it and go, wow, there's like 40 monitors. This guy's professional. You know, they could this they would think. Yeah, all yeah. that wine has really stepped up, you know, especially when I mean, especially the people have listened to us for, since 2009, yeah. you know. Yes. And they, oh, is this still playing? I'm oh, sorry. At www.facebook.com forward slash allaboutwinebtr. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash allaboutwinebtr. And now, All About Wine is on. Here's Ron. Okay. All right. Welcome to the show. This is All About Wine on February the 15th, the day after Valentine's Day at 7.02. We have a guest tonight, a very knowledgeable guest. Before I introduce the guest, I do want to make a comment. Uh-oh. The Super Bowl was Sunday, uh, and everybody knows I'm a sports fan. I'm from Kansas City, and so I was I was cheering for Chiefs, and it was a good game. That's really what we always hope for. We mm-hmm. hope for a good game, not a blowout or something that you sit there and just wait for the advertisements to come on so you can enjoy an advertisement and not watch the game. This was a good game. And, um, mm-hmm. they, you know, I mean, overtime, only the second overtime and stuff like that. It was a good game. But then the parade yesterday in Kansas City, and I, I got home. I, I was uh, uh, out playing golf yesterday, and I got home from golf. And my wife said, you hear about what happened in Kansas City? It's parade. And I go, no. And I turned on the news, and they were talking about the shooting that happened there. And I was heartsick. I, I really was heartsick. It like it punched me because that's not Kansas City. That's not the Kansas City I grew up in. That's not the Kansas City that I know. And uh, there were a million people plus at that celebration, and it was at the end, and people were already leaving and, and stuff like that. And I think three suspects opened fire. I don't know. I haven't heard any 
any more on it except that's just three. My sister, who both my sisters who still live there, said that they would be in touch with me once they release any more information on the perps. But I don't even know if they will or not because now the new policy is just you don't bring their names up or anything just because you don't want to give them any notoriety. But I was heart sick. And I talked to my sister last night, and she said that everybody on the news there in Kansas City, every channel is saying, don't define Kansas City about what happened there. And that's so true. I it, it was It was a good city, and it's not... That's a horrible, horrible tragedy, and I just, well, I want to say don't define Kansas City about what happened there, because it's it's a good city to grow up in, a good city to be from, and it's not like, you know, that happens all the time. It's not like Super Bowl parades happen. Well, they do two years in a row, but, uh, so, uh, yeah, you know, this time I want to bring that up. Uh, our guest is in the green room. He's probably munching down on all of our goodies we have in there for him. Before I bring him out, though, let me give you a little quick biography, a little resume. I mean, the man is phenomenal. Uh, J. Stephen Castles, is it? Um, we'll ask him how he pronounce his name. Has been a grape grower for over 45 years in the Hudson Valley and worked at leading wineries on the East Coast. Stephen wrote Grapes of the Hudson Valley and Other Cool Climate Regions of the United States and Canada. It's in its second edition, uh, revised and updated. This Now the update includes New England grapes, which details how to make wine, establish and maintain a vineyard, and the growing and winemaking characteristics of over 200 cool climate grape varieties. At his farm in Athens, New York, Cedar Cliff Vineyards, he grows 95 rare French-American hybrids and 19th-century heritage grape varieties from the Hudson Valley and Massachusetts, which he evaluates, makes wine from, and lectures about. He also lectures on wine, grape cultivation, 19th-century American horticulture, and landscape architecture at botanical gardens and historical societies throughout the Northeast. He is working on two new books, the Grapes of Korea, you thought I was going to try to pronounce that, didn't you, Stephen? And the Prince Family Nurseries of Flushing, New York. And we can bring Stephen onto the show and let him tell us more about what he's doing. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Okay, well, uh, thank you for having me tonight. No, it's our pleasure, believe me. Um, oh, great. Okay. So you can hear me then. I'm, I'm I'm new to this, so I just want to make sure I'm doing what I need to do. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, you're, you're there. <laughs> You're there. <laughs> uh, uh, the uh, uh, well, first thing, the J. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that stand for? Oh, that's for Joseph. Um, my father's a Joseph. Was his grandfather, great grandfather, great great grandfather, great great grandfather. <laughs> but on our area, I guess what happens is like, if you have the same name as your father, they all call you Junior. I have several people in the neighborhood that I call Junior who are now like ninety years old. I don't even know their first name. We all call them Junior. So <laughs> for whatever reason, the first name has to be Joseph, but you use the middle name as the real name. Otherwise, you'll just be uh, called Junior. So, okay. so that's, that's why. So. <laughs> all right. Uh, that makes sense. And your last name is Castles? Castles. That's how that it's pronounced. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I was, uh, I was thinking so. It was sort of... Uh, 
uh, well, I wasn't sure if it was a soft C or hard C. So, and mm-hmm. so, okay. Uh, I first heard you, saw you, was on a podcast that you did about the Native American grapes. And you were one of them that put your input on it. This was what? Uh, six, eight months ago, I think. Something like that. A mm-hmm. Fascinating. Mm-hmm fascinating podcast i just i was so impressed with the whole thing and i i just i learned so much and i had your other uh co-host on the show and you had pneumonia when i tried to get you on or laryngitis yeah yeah we we had the canadian fires which had all the smoke and then i i got that yeah so unfortunately so yeah so Finally, we get you on the show. We get to talk with you. You have quite a resume. Oh, my gosh. I'm not even going to attempt to try to go through the whole thing. Uh, It's just you uh, have been involved in all sorts of stuff over the years. Uh, Actually trained as an attorney, but you've dedicated so much time to uh, horticultural and uh, grape growing and and winemaking that is just... It's just amazing. So I guess the first question is, what got you into the grape industry? I mean, you're, like I say, you're trained as a, a lawyer. What uh, what made you turn the corner there? And that's, and that's actually my first love. I mean, I worked for the state of New York for 35 years, and I specialized actually in healthcare financing, which is like how hospitals operate so that you want to make sure that like when you want to go to the ER – the lights are on. There's someone there to help you. So that's <laughs> primarily what I did. But but in addition to that, I worked in the New York State Legislature for um, oh, several decades, and I worked on like laws that affected like how you can regulate uh, the manufacture and sale of alcohol to encourage like smaller wineries to cooperate with each other so they can like jointly ship, jointly make wines and do stuff like that. So I did mm-hmm. that in municipal bond work. So those are like those. That was my day job. That's how I got a pension. That's how I got my health benefits. So <clears throat> very important. Worked with some very wonderful, very smart people um, in New York State and in other parts of the country. So it was kind of fun. And the reason I got into grapes was that I lived next door to my grandparents who had a fruit farm. So I kind of learned oh. from them, like, how to grow fruit, how to make wine, um, and, and that kind of stuff. And then where I lived uh, in the Middle Hope, New York area, which is just north of uh, Newburgh, New York. There's actually probably 15 wineries there to this day. And in the Hudson Valley, there's probably like 50 wineries there. So what I did was, even as a a teenager, I worked at a winery called Ben Mall Vineyards, which is in Marlboro, New York. So, And I learned a lot from the the, the owners. There was Eric and Kim Miller were the brothers, and the parents were – Dean and Mark Miller. So I learned a real lot from them. So, so they're the ones who kind of taught me how to make wine making. So, and I, you know, so and if they're listening, a uh, shout out to them right now. So, who I still keep in contact with. Oh, great, great. Uh, you are a consultant for all of, a whole bunch of wineries now. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm doing more and more of that kind of work right now. I mean, really, I mean, my work has been. Like trying to, for, for you know, for the longest time is like trying to grow grape varieties you, which can be grown sustainably and grapes that you don't have to spray as often. And I guess it's more, more my uh, selfish interest in that is that like if you grow Chardonnay, you have to spray it like 
12 times of really hot stuff. While the sustainable grapes that I use, the heritage ones and the French American hybrids, you can spray them four times or five times. That means the other seven times while I would be out there spraying, I'm fishing, I'm going to the <laughs> pool, I'm resting. So, so there's a, I mean, not only does it save you time and money and the spraying of, of chemicals, what it is it means you have more time to do things that you want to do as opposed to doing that. So that was kind of how I got into growing or mostly growing those kind of grapes. And when I worked at Ben Marl, that's the grapes they use, which because they have were educated, they were like illustrators in New York City, but they had lived and learned and were trained how to make wine in France. And the ones, the grapes they were using were the ones that they got from Philip Wagner from uh, Maryland uh, in Maryland. And, um, they grew grapes like French American hybrids like Baco, Chalois, Chambersen, uh, Chancellor, Seval, Vidal. So my background really is working with those kinds of varieties. And then from there, um, I, I read a book called Grapes of New York, which is a, a book that was done by Cornell University in 1908. And what it did was it, it described pretty much all grape varieties that were around in 1908 that were grown east of the Mississippi River. So our Mississippi River going east. And what I found was that in that in, in the Hudson Valley, that there were many, many grape varieties that were developed in the town that I grew up in, which is Newburgh, New York. So it was actually a hotbed for people who were hybridizing grapes in from the 1840s to the 1890s. So what I found myself doing was there's a the federal government has a germplasm a facility where you can, it's like a grape arc where you can get cuttings of these rare varieties in Geneva or UC Davis. And what I did was I wrote to them, got cuttings, and then planted them, and they grow really well. So that's why I kind of like the, the Hudson Valley developed grape varieties. And then from there, I started uh, learning more about, since I went to school in the Boston area and vacation in the Rockport, Gloucester area, what I found was that there was a lot of grapes that were developed in that area, so I grow those varieties as well. So the second edition of my book, Grapes of the Hudson Valley, has two new chapters on grapes that are actually developed um, in mostly Salem, Massachusetts, and the Boston's North Shore. So that's kind of how I got into it. And and since my grandparents were growers, they were selling grapes like at wholesale and bulk rate. And as a farmer, you really can't make any money selling grapes wholesale. You have to make something out of them. So I kind of got into winemaking because I wanted to make something out of grapes so I could sell them at retail, not wholesale. So, it's, so as an example, it's, it's sort of like I got into baking because I wanted to grow different kinds of wheat. So that's kind of how I got into <laughs> baking because I wanted to grow different kinds of wheat. And you can't sell wheat on its own. You gotta mill it and make it into something so you can make pastries. So, so that's kind of like how I kind of got there. So uh, <laughs> that's a good point. I never really thought too much about it. But there's quite a few growers out there that just uh, just grow, but you never hear about them. And they don't do too much. That's <laughs> very true. yeah, you, yeah. You and they're barely money. making a living. So yeah. yeah. So I so I try to like grow things like you to reduce the the inputs to grow the things but also grow things that you can make quality wines out of them. I see. Now, you mentioned the Native American grapes. I am uh, uh, fascinated, I guess is the word, I, about the Native American grapes. And 
the only Native American grapes that I've ever been familiar with has been the muscadine, which mm-hmm. is, uh, I, I don't know, I, I get a, oh, a foxy flavor, foxy taste to them that I just can't get out of my mind. But yet mm-hmm. you mentioned so many other Native American grapes that are not that way. Uh, mm-hmm. What's... Uh, yeah, what's I would the say that like, <laughs> of the, um, I would say of the French American grape varieties, which were, were which had French grapes in them, but also American species of grapes in them. What they did was they were trying to breed in American grape varieties that had like resistance to like diseases that were. I mean, what happened in France is that you had a grape store from the U.S. that were brought over to France. They brought with them a lot of their fungal diseases, so like black rot, downy mildew, powdery mildew, bugs like phloxera, uh, <clears throat> which actually decimated the French vineyards. So what they were doing in France is they were hybridizing American grapes with French grapes, and they're bringing in American. Uh, species of grapes to kind of get in more like um, disease resistance to them. So what you'll find is like a lot of the French American grapes, what they do is the American grape varieties, they brought in there like, it's like a species called like Estevalos, which is like from Texas, Labrusca, mm-hmm. which is like along the East Coast. Those are like Concords, Delawares, that, that kind of stuff. But they also brought in Sonera, Bucturiana, there's a, a, a Riparia. So there's like probably, there's probably... 20 major grape species that are wild in the U.S., but when it came to uh, hybridizing in the U.S. and in France, they tended to, like, concentrate on those that were going to help them either make good quality grapes for table use or wine or also which would be, like, be very cold-hardy or which would, like, be able to combat fungus diseases. So so many of the Native American grapes that were bred in the U.S., what they did was they brought in uh, grape varieties like Riparia, which are like very cold hardy, or Labruscas, which had like big berries and lots of wild flavors, which would be good in table grapes. They kind of did it that way. So, so in the U.S., there was a lot of breeding going on, mostly in the Hudson Valley and in the New England area, and a little bit in the, the uh, like when Jerry Estervelt from Teravox does it. There were grapes that were developed by TV Munson, which was from Texas. So there were people right. in the what I don't know what you call. They said there was like enough kind of ignorant this way is that they said that they, they were the Midwest, but I never thought of Texas or the Panhandle of Texas as being the Midwest. But he, TV Munson was trying to develop grape varieties that would grow well in Missouri and Ohio and, and those areas right there, and he was breeding in like. American grape varieties, but with some European grape varieties, but his base actually was Native American grapes that were developed in the Hudson Valley and in New England. And then what he tried to do is like crossbreed them and bring in more disease resistance and things that could live in very warm climates like Texas and Missouri. And also cold hardy too. Wasn't he doing some cold hardy work on it, or is that just he was doing cold hardy work? Yep. Yep, but he was really doing a lot of time is like trying to like do like really I mean hot weather. So like in Missouri, it's hot. So or it's hot, yeah. in parts yeah. of Arkansas, it's it's hot yeah. and very very humid. So what you'll find is that grapes that tend to be able to do well in very hot weather also will do very well in cold weather because of the genetic material that's in them. So you do it that oh, way. Really? So, oh. so yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when it comes to muscat, I like muscatine wines actually quite a bit, and that's a different family or species of grape varieties that comes mostly from the south. So that's like Virginia, the Tennessee, south. And they're, they're very different varieties. Well, they'll have like canes that'll go out like 30 or 40 feet, and the yeah. berries are probably like the size of plums, and you'll have yeah. like only oh, yeah. three berries per bunch. So, And I, I like muscatines. They have like it's almost like sherry. It's like very sweet, but sherry-like. So they're not Concordy-like or Labrusque-like. But I like muscadines actually quite a bit. So, and, you know, I, I say it just if it's made well, the muscadine's not bad. And, and you know, that's mm-hmm. the key to anything. I mean, if it's made well, then it's quite enjoyable. But, you know, some people just throw it together, just say, okay, here you go. And I don't know, I've mm-hmm. had some bad uh, uh, bad experiences with that. Uh Oh, okay. So the uh, grapes you're growing, you you have how many different varieties? Ninety four. I have ninety four. At one point, I had a hundred and seven, but I'm now sixty four years old, so I'm kind of like trying to. <laughs> so it's it's uh, time to kind of pick your favorite shoulder. That's kind of what I'm doing. So what yeah, I've been so doing, sort of like what what Prince from Prince Nurseries, like in the 1850s in Flushing, New York, is like I'm trying to isolate those that are ones that I'm really concentrating on and propagating them and getting them to other people. So there's actually probably 20 or 30 that I'm really keen on. So what I've been doing is like getting cuttings and shipping those cuttings actually to different parts of the country, a lot of it, believe it or not, onto the West Coast. But what I'm doing is like I'm now working with friends who are want to establish a nursery in Marlboro, New York, so the Quimby Farm, uh, Jed Radcliffe, which is from Fonda, New York, and then also the Russell Farm, which is in Ipswich, Massachusetts. So what they're doing is they're getting cuttings of the, of the varieties that I think would really do well in those areas. They're propagating them. They have a nursery, and they're putting them in their vineyards, which they're expanding. But also what they're doing is they're then selling them to other growers so they can kind of get more of these grapes out there. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah, so, the, so right now it's like I'm like, it's nice that I have 94 different varieties, but what I'm trying to do is make sure that there are nurseries that are planting them and, and promoting them and then trying to get wineries to put them in and to make wine out of them. And also, too, I also work at a winery, which is called Deer Native Grapes, which is um, in Delaware County, New York. So Alfie, Alcantara, and Dina, they own the winery there um, in, in uh, Walton, New York. And what I do is they make um, – they're making great wines out of, like, uh, the heritage ones like Catawba and Delaware and Empire State. They're doing that. So I do make wine commercially, so right now I'm making it with – Deer native grapes, and that and that's actually a, someone you should talk to and have them on your show because they're doing pet nats, they're doing peacats, but they're also doing like simple wines that are like you know that are good because it's you know it's a it's a nice environment there, but it's like it's a little it's a little bit colder than it is in the Hudson Valley. So, but they're very yeah. nice people. So I would I would talk to them at some point, but I'm working with them and helping them make wine. If you if you will send me uh, contact information for them, just okay, email that. me that, and I mm-hmm. I will get a hold of them. Oh, okay. You have ninety four varieties. Are you just selling clippings, or have you made wine from all those? Oh, I've made wine from every single one. Have so you? what I do right now is like for the longest time, I worked at Ben Marl Vineyards, actually from a teenager until after law school, and then. 
uh, my, and then I've worked a lot on my own. So I like have I have in my garage I have an experimental vineyard or winery there. So what I would do is like I would make like five gallons of like many different varieties to see what those <laughs> varieties were like. You know, so you have to first determine like are they good in the field? Will they live? And there's a lot of things you have to, that you have to look at when you're trying to see if they're good enough to, to actually, if they're good in the field. The kinds of things you need to think about is like, are they fungus disease resistant? Um, are they winter hardy? That's very, very important. Um, the other thing that's important is that um, with our changing climate is that you're seeing, and this actually happened in British Columbia just this year, two years ago, and it's happened alternatively in the Northeast is that we have that we seem to be having warmer and warmer falls, and then like around Christmas we get this Christmas Day massacre where it goes to zero degrees, mm-hmm. the grapes get zapped, and then it goes back up to sixty. And then last year what we did was like it was like the weather in December was like fifty, forty, fifty. Christmasy was like zero, zero. Then it was forty, 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 fifty, fifty, fifty <laughs> in January. And then we had a second uh, massacre on Groundhog's Day, February 2nd, where it went down to, like, negative 10. And it did it for, like, two days. And then when you have, like, warm weather that goes – that which then goes into cold weather, it's generally very violent because basically the cold weather – the cold weather comes in very quickly into warm areas. So it isn't like it's just negative 5 degrees. It's negative 5 degrees with 40-mile-an-hour wind. And that just dries up the, the, the vines a lot that way. So, so not only have I been trying to identify grape varieties that are fungus resistant and winter hardy, what's winter hardy is now different because they have to be able to harden off fairly early in the year and then be able to withstand being fairly warm for a good part of the winter, getting really cold, really warm, and then really cold again. The other thing that I've been trying to do in identifying, and actually I write a lot of articles for UMass Amherst. There's a, a, a magazine called Fruit Notes, um, mm-hmm. and then also Horticultural News, which is at a Rutgers University. So I write a lot of articles for them on trying to identify grape varieties that are, I'd say, winter hardy in the new definition, which is that they can, like, withstand being, like, warmer than average than colder than average, but also very important what you're seeing is that, uh, particularly in the Northeast, but also in British Columbia, this has happened several years in a row now too, where basically it will be like you'll have a really warm spring, and then in May you'll have a frost. So the grapes are budding out earlier because it's really warm, and then we're going down to like not 28, but like say 25 and 23, and that kills them. So certain varieties, the ones that I've been trying to identify that are the heritage ones or the French-American hybrids, they are grape varieties um, that basically when spring comes early and it should be and it's warmer, they stay buttoned up. They don't, like, butt out early. They came. Oh, really? They, they oh. So, so, so what happens is, like, when it goes down zero, not zero, but when it gets down to, like, you know, below freezing a lot, you don't have a lot of green growth, which gets killed by a late spring frost. So those right. are the kinds of things you need to do, and, that's, and those are the kind of articles I write about to, like, uh, to, to kind of to do it that way. The other thing that's kind of interesting, so, so the, those, that's the first step. You have to be able to identify grape varieties that are fungus disease resistant, can sustain these weird winters now, that can have a crop after a late spring frost, but also, too, they have to, like, taste it tastes good. So what I do is I'll, when I, at least in my uh, experimental vineyard or winery, what I'll do is I'll make 
five gallons of Lucronel and five gallons of Palmer and Verdelay. And what I do is that over the years, you just make them so you have an idea of what these grapes are like in the cellar. And then ideally what you want to do is like have, you know, a grape variety is like good in the field, that's good in the cellar. And it can be good in the cellar in various ways. It can be like, it can have like a lot of acid that you need to brighten up a white, or it can be very floral and you can blend it with other things, or it can be a high producer. Like for instance, like Baco Blanc is a high producer and it makes like a neutral wine, but they use that wine actually in France, the, the, the Baco Blanc, um, to make uh, brandy. So if you have an Armagnac, okay. it's a Baco Blanc. So it's a variety oh. that's like really resistant, really good in the field. It can make a cognac, a traditional cognac, um, or actually Armagnac, not cognac. And the, But the other thing, too, is it's kind of a – not only is it very, very productive, it's kind of neutral. So you can make a bulk neutral wine and then add other grape varieties, like the cool climate heritage grape varieties, that are very floral, and you add like 10% of a Verdelay or a Vidal or like, say, a Valerian, and you add those white varieties to this base wine, and you'll have a lovely wine. So in the end, you want to have like not only a good quality wine – but a good quality wine with some kind of volume so that you can make a living at it. So that's right. kind of the stuff that I've been doing. So, again, how do they go in the field, but also what kind of wines do they make? So and since I was educated mostly by uh, uh, people who were educated in France, we're big into blending. So we're not big into, like, I mean, I think many of the chemists who are in the wine industry, they they try and control the vineyard to make exactly what they want and only that. And I try and do what I can with what the grapes that I have in the field. But if I grow like 20 or 30 different grape varieties, I'm always back blending. So every year I can kind of do that. It's sort of like a baseball team. Like you just like one year you think you've got great pitching. turns out you don't, great, you don't have great pitching. But it turns out <laughs> you've got a great outfield and you've got headers. So every year when you think you've got a certain kind of a ball team, and then by like, you know, September, if you're still in the running, you're going to find out that like you thought it was going to be pitching games are going to win you. It's not pitching, it's hitting, and you need to expect it. So that's why if you grow many different grape varieties, what you can do is, like you say, it's a very different year than I thought, and I thought I was going to make these, like, really floral kind of wines, but it's a big, heavy, hot year. I'm going to be making big reds. So you just have to know how to do that. So that's that's the other thing you've got to do, and that's why I tend to like blending, and that's why I think it's, it's more fun, particularly in the Northeast, because we'll have, like, there's probably 20 or 30 – major grape varieties that we use well like in, in the west coast it's pretty much they're all vinifera you got to mm-hmm. frame a lot and it's the top five so it's cabernet sauvignon it's merlot it's pinot it's chardonnay it's whatever well here it's like all these weird wild varieties so it's a lot more fun making wine at least for where you are yeah it sounds like it you were mentioning the cold and warm and cold the summers can get quite warm there too. Does that affect the? That's the other thing that we're we're finding. It used to be, I mean, like for instance, like grape varieties, like the American species that are Native Americans, but they're all still hybrids. Like Concord's a hybrid, Delaware's a hybrid, uh, Niagara's a hybrid. But love the Brusque varieties, which are the base of many Native American grape species. They don't like hot. They don't like heat. They tend to be mm-hmm. ones that would like grow up in trees and like shade. So they don't like all this heat. So what you have to do when you're identifying grape varieties is that you have to understand that like we're having much 
warmer uh, summers now, and and they're alternating. It used to be your springs were like you know in the good old days, whatever that means. Is that <laughs> in the spring it was like kind of it was kind of cool, uh, it was kind of cool and it was wet. In the summer you had hot weather, but it was really Fourth of July to August first, and that's it. What you're finding, and also it would tend to be dry. What I'm finding now is like two years ago, we had probably the wettest summer we had in a hundred years. Wow. So, oh, no, sorry. Two years ago, it was like it was the hottest, driest summer we've had in a hundred years. The next year, it was the hottest, wettest summer we've had <laughs> in a hundred years. So the, certain grape varieties aren't going to be able to do very well in those kind of conditions. So what I do is I, um, with the 94 that I do right now, I do like when you pick them, when do they bud break, what's their sugar content. I do observations on them to see which varieties can be, can grow okay and make a quality wine in a very hot, wet year and a very hot, dry year because it seems to be alternating on how, how you do it that way. So so that, 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 that's true. Yeah, again, so usually it was like cold, warm springs, hot, dry summer, and then kind of a cool, not-so-wet fall. Now what you're finding is that like the last few falls, we've had it where it's like we've been having our frosts that aren't like around – it used to be frost, at least where, I was, where I'm from, was like, like the middle of October – Right now yeah. we're having frosts that are like, like Thanksgiving, you know, the, the second to last week in, in, in November. So mm-hmm. what you're having is that it's a much longer growing season. I mean, like when I was a yeah. So our growing season is like probably from when I was a kid to now is probably about three weeks longer than it was when I was a kid. Again, that was like a long time ago. That was like you know 50 years ago. But we're having the kind of climate that I have now in upstate New York is the same kind of climate when I was a kid you would have found like in southern New Jersey. So yeah. so it's actually it's a lot warmer, a lot hotter. So you have to kind of you have to like figure out the grapes have to be varieties that will be able to withstand that. The other thing you'll find about at least the direct producers or these heritage grape varieties and these um uh grapes that are like from the uh, uh the from France is their direct producers all of the viniferas that which are from France or from Europe, they all have to have rootstock because they want to protect themselves from phloxera and other native uh, root bounces there in the U.S. The American or these uh, French-American hybrids and the Native American grapes, they're direct producers. They don't have a rootstock. So it's a lot cheaper to kind of, one, plant them, propagate mm-hmm. them. But also, too, if you have, like, a really cold winter where everything gets zapped up to the ground level, that means that the plant that you're trying to grow for your grapes, the, the Zion, is is basically all dead. So all you have is, <clears throat> excuse me, all you have is your rootstock. With the direct producers, what happens is like, you don't have that problem where the Zion or the plant above the, the uh, rootstock is the plant you're trying to grow. With the hybrid, it's all the same variety. So you can still get cut it. You can still get buds that come from below ground and still get a crop that year while with the viniferas you can't and then you have to like basically regraft them all again so that's oh, the other wow. plus about the grape rising growing so uh, oh wow <laughs> um i i know what you mean about the winters and the frost where everyone i talk to every time i talk to anybody who has a vineyard 
and uh, growing, they always mention that the harvest and is becoming later and later uh, every year, and bud break seems yeah. to be getting earlier, uh, which yep. sometimes yep. it's a curse because of, like you say, the late frost. But uh, this, what everybody's uh, saying, I mean, all across the country, it's uh, uh, getting to be a longer growing season, which I don't know. It, it is. I mean, I'm, for instance, I mean, as an example, uh, there's a grape variety which I use a lot called Baco Noir, which makes very lovely, like, Burgundian kind of reds. But this mm. grape variety... It used to be used to pick it like the third week of September every year. What I'm doing consistently now, sadly, is that I'm picking it Labor Day weekend. So I'm picking oh, wow. it on average two to three weeks earlier every year. So no matter what the no matter what the, the average temperatures are, on average I'm picking them two to three weeks earlier than I used to ever do it consistently. So that means that things are doing very different. So grapes that would have done well here, like, you know, 50 years ago, may not do so well here for that reason. Is that because you get an earlier bud break and it's just still the same length of growing season? It's or just because is it's hotter. It's what hotter. happens is, okay. like, your springs are coming up earlier so that they're budding out earlier, but it's hotter. So it's hotter during the summer, so they, they go, they go, they go, they, they, they're they ripening a lot quicker. No. And that's also that, the same thing with, like, if you, there's, like, the Minnesota hybrids, which are, mostly riparia-based, they're, they're made for, like, very cold areas. So what they do is they try and ripen their grapes in 90 days. So it's a race. So think wow. about this way. If you're, like, growing a riparia grape in Minnesota, it's a race against, like, <laughs> the winter where it's, like, sub-zero again. So you want to get to the finish line. So what's happening is that um, many of the Minnesota hybrids have, like, riparia heritage in the species in them so they're racing to the finish so they want to get there so they don't care they don't like say well i got time they're like no i want to get it early so if it's a, if it's a warm hot summer they're just going to get there earlier and just do it that way yeah and, and they're happy with that yeah well, well it's the uh, uh all of your Grapes all ninety two are they getting bud break about the same time or are no nope, all different uh, That's the nice thing about them. They're all different. And, again, if you Google my name, it will have all the articles I've written for Fruit Notes for the University of Massachusetts and Rutgers, but I write articles on them. And some bud out, like, a little bit earlier. Some are a little bit later. Some, even though they bud out a little bit earlier, they don't like uh, certain varieties, like the, like the ripe perries. As soon as they do a bud break, it's a race. And they just throw out green growth, and they'll throw out, like, six inches of green growth, like, say, in a week or two. But wow. So they'll do it that way. Other ones, even though they come out, they'll have secondary buds that will be in reserve, and they'll just come out for, like, an inch, a half an inch, and do it that way. So <laughs> what I find is of the 94, there's some that come out fairly early, some mid-season, some that come out later, but also, too, the rate of growth of those buds and the canes that come off, the green growth that comes off is also very, very different. So, And that's why you kind of do it that way. So grapes that were probably you could grow in Virginia, you could now grow in New York. But also, too, there's, like, grape varieties that um, you could never have grown, like, say, in parts of Canada. Now you can grow them. So, But they're all very, very different. So, Yeah, well, that's, I've been reading articles about some of the problems and some of the things they've been doing in Canada. It's amazing. They are taking a lot of the, of the New York varieties and Growing them in Canada now because of the weather. Yep, 
and in England, you're finding they they grow a lot of Seval now. They're growing more Riesling there. So so even in mm-hmm. in Europe, I mean, when I the few times I've been to to England, um, they had like a few grapes. There was a few Seval's, but they didn't grow them because it was a lot it was a lot cooler. So they couldn't consistently ripen a crop. Now they can. So you're seeing a lot of grape growing is shifting from France to England because the climate. Yeah. Uh, a lot of champagne being done in, in England now too. Some uh, a yep. lot of champagne mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. prices there. Uh, so it's changing. The grape growing region is changing. Um, your new book. Uh, let's let's see where am I here? Um, the Korean book. Yeah, the Korean book. Okay, Chung Buk Do, and that's the grape growing area in Korea. And you wouldn't believe it or not, but they grow more grapes or acres. They have more acreage of grapes in Korea than they have in New York State and Washington State combined. Whoa! They grow a lot of grapes and there. That's and what they are yeah. is they are mostly seedless grapes that, that stay there, but they're, what they're doing now is they're starting to actually uh grow them for winemaking and the attraction i have i mean i like the culture and i've been to korea once and i hope to go again very soon again the book that i wrote was really grape varieties that either grow in korea or grape varieties that are developed in korea and a lot of the grape varieties they use in korea are actually american hybrids so like campbell's oh. early Verdelay, and delaware so a lot of them are native american grape varieties that do very well there but they also did is like really starting like say around oh i don't know it's probably like 1960s they have um a national university uh suwon where they were developing um korean grape rice and hybridizing doing their own hybridization program so what they did Mm -hmm. was a lot of the favorite grapes native american grapes that i like here they use them as the base for their hybrids there so there's a lot of grape varieties like uh Verdelay-based hybrids, which like uh, Chionso, and then Delaware, which is a lovely wine that's a Native American grape here. They use that grape a lot to develop Korean grape rice. So the book, and actually the book is hopefully going to be in print in the next week or so. So it's done, oh. the galleys are done, but what it does is it's kind of like the Grapes of New York book in that it talks about like who is the hybridizer, why were they trying to hybridize? But you, it also but it gives the genetic material of like what it was. But many of the many of the, the, the grapes that were used to breed the Korean grape varieties are American grape varieties that were used you know, that that were used. So that's why I kinda like them. So what they are is like there's seedless grape varieties that you can make wine out of. So right. they're really and they're fun grapes and they're like big bunches, big berries, highly productive, but also too they're very fungus disease resistant because in Korea it's hot and it's humid. So, um, so they're very and it's cold fungus- though too. Korea can it's get cold, very it's cold. cold. Actually, it's not. It's, I mean, in, in the in the Republic of Korea, it's not as cold as like 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 North Korea. That's cold. That's like cold than you could ever possibly imagine. And the <laughs> winter, and I mean, it, but the the winters in like the Republic of Korea are pretty much like the Hudson Valley. So it gets down to like, you know, negative 10, like 32. So it's kind of that area. But in the summer, it's hot. But the one thing that's different is they have a monsoon. So what happens is you have to put up like these canvases to kind of protect the, grape, protect the grapes. So, but, so there you have grapes that are like, that are resistant to the heat. 
they're fungus disease resistant, and you have these monsoons that come in, like, say, about when you pick your grapes, which is, like, August and September, and they're so resilient that they can last through it. So I'm saying, like, you can have grapes that can live through a monsoon and pick them and make wine at them. So they're very resistant grape varieties, and my hope <laughs> is to be able to actually bring them over here and then use those grape varieties over here. Oh, wow. Well, that, the only thing I remember about Korea is, in fact, whenever you look up Korean wine, you're always getting flower wine uh, made from all sorts of different varieties of flowers. And They have that, but also, too, they have, a lot, they have grow a lot of fruit there. There's a lot of persimmon wine, uh, apple wines they have, a lot of uh, blueberry wines. So there's a lot of different kinds of fruit wines, and they back blend them. And sometimes they'll use, like, a, a neutral uh, white wine, and then they'll put, like, blueberries in it or strawberries. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the Hudson Valley in the, in the northeast as far as the temperature ranges. So you tend to grow exactly the same kind of fruit. So it's, like, strawberries, <clears throat> blueberries, pears, plums, a lot of cherries. Um, Apples, so, yeah. so those are the kinds of – so there's a fair amount of fruit wines, but you're seeing more – grape wines come out too from these new hybrids that, that were developed there yeah cause I, I i've talked about korea in the past on the show it's been almost 10 years but about the only thing i could find was you know the fruit wines flower wines and stuff there really wasn't a mm-hmm. market on grapes uh it mm-hmm. doesn't mm-hmm. surprise me that there's so many now um, yeah yeah it's uh, what the, the uh, grapes that they are growing and the wines they're making from it is it the same? Well, red and white, just like in uh, Hudson Valley. Yeah, they're red, like they have reds and whites. But again, what they are is they're they're grape varieties that were developed there, but they have a lot of, of U.S. grape varieties in them. Again, so like Verdelet, Delaware, um, you know, Thompson Seedless, Himrod Seedless. So they have a lot of those uh, Campbell's Early. Uh, Koyo, which is actually a Concord hybrid, so there's a lot of them that, that are that are that way. So that's why it's kind of fun, and that the climate's similar, and a lot of the wines that we make here in New York State are actually similar to some of the wine styles that we're that you're seeing in Korea. And I think what's happened too is that you're seeing the the, the, the not the cuisine, but I think drinking patterns are changing a bit in Korea. So it used to be you didn't really it wasn't a wine drinking country. It was pretty much you drank soju. And they're and they're also getting into like as Japan is doing is they're getting into whiskey so they're making some lovely lovely whiskeys so hmm. um, so they're getting into that kind of stuff too and what I found is like when I went to Yangdong um, and uh, met the mayor and we all went to like a, a local restaurant there they're really it's actually interesting it's like they're really big into French cuisine so like Yangdong is a town that is probably. 10,000 people, and they have not one, not two, but three wonderful French pastry shops. And so, <laughs> so they have a lot of French pastries. They have a lot. So they love French cooking. So there's a lot of French cooking. The other thing is, like, when we went out to dinner with the mayor um, of, of Yangdong, and they were very proud. They're also growing different kinds of beef now. And it's like sort of like you'll see the same thing that's happening in Japan. It's like marbleized meat that has like certain grains of like uh of like you know satin and stuff like that so like mm-hmm. really really tender meat so oh, wow. so korea unlike parts of china is a meat eating country they love their beef so they're specializing <laughs> in that so what we so 
when we went to this restaurant in Yangdong, we had French pastries, we had asparagus and a cream sauce, we had like a beef bourguignon. So we oh had God. all French food. So yeah. uh, they wanted to show the different things they're doing there. So if you want a good French meal, go to Korea. Go to so, Korea. <laughs> so it's kind of fun that way. And then and and with that, you're seeing much more more um, uh, wines that, that that are complementing those those kind of things. So. You said that they're using uh, their uh, hybrids with uh, – what's my word? Yeah, hybrids with the American grapes. What are they blending with it? What are they doing? What is native, with native grapes? Korean? So native grapes, native grapes that are from there. So like Chung Rang is a local native grape that was like a wild grape. So just like they were hybridizing grapes in the 1850s in the U.S. and taking like either European grapes – or first-generation Native American grapes, and then hybridizing it with other Native American grapes that had a lot more uh, fungus disease-resistant or had bigger berries. You're seeing the same mm-hmm. thing in Korea. They were like they're like second-generation Native uh, grapes that were from the mountains in Korea, and they used that and then hybridized them with the U.S. grapes so they could get much more fungus disease resistance, cold hardiness but also the flavors that you wanted from either European grapes or Native American grapes. Oh, wow. Okay. I just I can't picture a native Korean grape um, being much more than just a uh, wild vine growing up there that's no good. And that's all it was. <laughs> I mean, basically they were just going up there and they were collecting them, but there's, I mean, just because, I mean, just like in the U.S., you have like maybe 20 major species of of Native American grapes, uh, and five of which are used primarily for breeding in the U.S. The same thing is in Korea. So, like for instance, like species, a dog, a chihuahua is genetically the same as a Saint Bernard. So, yeah. even though you have the same species of grape variety, it could be like a chihuahua, it could be like a Saint Bernard. So what you're doing is you're going in the field and you're selecting that species that's more like the St. Bernard as opposed to the Chihuahua, depending if you're looking for like big flavors and like, you know, a big dog. So you do it that way. Mm, so right. the same kind of thing. that. Way. So they're not all like little mountain things that have like little berries. They can be big things that way too. So, and they just isolate them and then brought them back in the lab, cultivated them and then bred them with, different American, and also Japanese grape varieties. I see. You said they got more vineyards there than they do in uh, well, New York and Washington put together. Yeah, I mean, Where I think it's they? something like it's. I think it's something like 38,000 hectares, and a hectare is 2.5 acres. Yeah. So it's like, it's, what would that be? That would be like, that would be like 30, almost like 90,000 acres of grape. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And, and is that all over the country, or is it down south? Or it's I mean, pretty much concentrated, like in, in Yangdong, and then also the book that I wrote on Chengbukdo. It's mostly grapes that are grown in that one province, which is Chengbukdo. Okay. And that's located. And there's actually a university that that hybridizes a lot of them. So I worked with that university. So it's Chengbuk National University. So and oh. there's also the Chengbukdo. Um, wine Institute. So I worked with Chungbuk Do Wine Institute, the university, and then what we do is I help draft the book, and they're publishing it, which will be kind of fun. So 
Oh, yeah. If there's that many acres, how many wineries are around there? I mean, grape wineries, not not all these other... Most of them, there's probably maybe, oh, there's probably like maybe a hundred. Most of the oh. grapes that are grown in Korea are for table consumption. Oh. I mean, there's seedless, okay. I mean, there's seedless grape varieties that have big berries. So, so yes, but, e- but even though they are that, they're still... They're, they're still Grape varieties that genetically have like Chardonnay in them, Verdelay in them, Delaware in them that make like really tasty table wines. So, but mm-hmm. most are used uh, as table grapes. And so the number of wineries is not. Uh, we're not talking hundreds. No, no, no. And and they tend to be smaller wineries, so they they tend to be mom and pop operations. And they make like you know. 20,000 gallons, 30,000 gallons, 10,000 gallons. But they're making some lovely wines. And the nice thing is, like, since it's a, a young country as far as making wine, they all get along, they're all talking to each other, and they're all making very different styles of Korean wine. So it's not settled as far as what the style of wine is for Korea. So, so it's kind of fun that way. And they're making big, heavy reds. They're making a lot of ports there. They're making a lot of sherries. Uh, they're making a lot of sparkling wow. wines. They're making a lot of different kinds of things there. No, a little bit of everything. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I am impressed. I didn't. I always thought of Korea as just wine made from flowers, and I never. Yep. Really so, and they grow a lot else. of other fruits there too. So, like a lot of watermelons, uh, muskmelons. I mean, there's like they grow a lot of fruit, so they eat a lot of fruit. Yeah. So you you can you know you can so any of those areas that grow grapes, they also grow other things like you know different kinds of melons and stuff like that. So. Yeah. When when are you looking? A couple of weeks, your book coming out? Um, I think it's, yeah, I mean, it's, the, the galleys are done, so it should probably be it. And what I do, once it comes out, I'll, I'll make sure that you can get a copy of it. So, But okay, it's kind good. of fun, but it's similar good. to the Grapes of New York book in that it does, like, by each university that was developed in the Grape Rise and say, okay, it's a blend of Verdelay and Himrod Silas. And the reason they did it was because of blah, blah, blah. It tastes like this. It's got this kind of fungus disease resistance, and, and do it that way. And also, too, the book is in English and Korean, so it's in both languages. Oh! Oh, yes, right. so it's, in both, it's in both languages, and there seems to be some interest there. So the first edition is going to be is, is in English and Korean, but we're working with people in Japan and Taiwan. And the second edition oh. is going to have, basically, it'll be something similar, only it will be in Taiwanese, and in Japanese. Oh, Because fantastic. they grow a lot of grapes in Taiwan and in Japan, yeah. and they're the same kind of variety. Verdelay, Thompson Seedless, um, uh, the, the Campbell's Early, Koyo. So oh. I'm doing it that way. So a lot of, because a lot of the um, Korean grapes also use a lot of Koyo, which is a grape variety that was developed like in the 1930s in Japan. And it's actually oh, a Concord really? hybrid. So, oh, is yeah. it? So, so there is interest, I think, because they, they grow the same kind of grape varieties in Japan and in, in Taiwan. It, it, well, are you going to have it available on, uh, uh, not YouTube, uh, Amazon when uh, when it comes out? I mean, but what uh, our I'll, listeners. I'll, I'll work it out. I'll, what I'll do is I'll work it out with the university. I mean, basically, it's the university's book. So, and I wrote it. Oh, and I wrote it with, okay. actually with um uh, with a with a, a a great colleague of mine. Of mine, her name is. Uh, uh, Kim Young, so and she runs and she or she works with her husband at a winery called Sanmak. So 
that's also in the Yeongdong area. So, so I worked with a Korean winemaker there. So the name of their winery is Sanmak. And what I did was I wrote the book in English. She translated into um, Korean, oh, Korean, but also ah. too, so, but but also was able to then talk to the people in the universities there to have them look it over to make sure it's accurate. They made a few changes that way. So it's been looked over by the university community in Korea, and then uh, it's in Korean in the U.S. So I have to thank uh, Kim Young for all her help with that. Without her, the book would not, would not have been possible. Oh, well, great. Is it uh, is the university then publishing it? Yeah, the, that's the one who's going to publish it. So it will be okay. the Chung... And what it is, there's a foundation that's associated with the, with the university. So Chungbuk-do National University is, and actually, it's a big college. It's like probably got like 18,000 students, and it has wow. doctoral programs in many different areas for agriculture and genetic engineering. So they have that there, but there's also something called the Chungbuk Wine Institute. So basically, it's being published through the Wine Institute. So, so basically, what they'll do is like, if you want to buy the book, I'll be able to give people the address, and you write to them, and they'll mail you a copy. Oh, oh great. I, yeah, I just, so I mean, I, I'm helping write the book, but I'm not the publisher, so it means, I mean, I'll help promote the book, but I mean, it's kind of nice. There's a publisher. You call them up. You write it to them, and then off it goes. So yeah. I, I'm just uh, so fascinated in the fact that Korea has really jumped up to the forefront of Wine grapes. It's uh, it seems so out of character. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's just something. Because I mean, I, I think what you're going to find too is like sort of like what you found in Washington State. The reason Washington State got so big in, in uh, their wine production is that Gallo got so big in California they had to go somewhere else. So they mm-hmm. they bought and created Saint Michelle, so they created another wine industry in Washington State, and before trying to do national distribution of Washington State wines, they pretty much sold on the West Coast and in Washington State. So what you found is, like, in Washington State, probably until, like, say, the 1980s, even though they were making a fair amount of wines in Washington State, they weren't getting national distribution. It was staying in that state, and then when they got to a certain volume, that's when I went national and started selling things that way. I think Korea is going to be the same boat in that it's pretty much it's all domestic consumption of their wines and their grapes. But I think afterwards it will probably change. I think. Now, well, if the, you know, as as it starts taking off too, there'll be more and more wineries, which will create more volume for it to be shipped everywhere. Yep. And yep. that's that's a, a great thing. Okay, well, fantastic. Be sure to send me the information on getting that book too. I'm really mm-hmm. interested in seeing what uh, reading that. Uh, yeah, and then afterwards, <coughs> tonight, or, tonight, I'm going to get your. I'm not very good at the computer stuff, but I'll get your link on this talk, and I'll share that with my. I don't own people with 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 people that I know to kind of share the stuff that way and kind of do it that way. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I was going to bring up too is that we were talking before about propagating different grape varieties. I mean, I do right. that, but what I'm finding is actually because of the hot weather that you're witnessing, particularly in California and in Oregon State, what they're doing is they are looking for things other than vinifera because like certain varieties that are like cool climate vinifers like Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, because of the hot weather, they're not doing so well. So believe it or not, 
A lot of the work that I'm doing right now is on the West Coast trying to propagate the varieties that I'm using because they're trying to grow direct producers that will make something like a Pinot Noir. So what I'm shipping to the West Coast is mostly the varieties that I like here, like Baco Noir and Burden and Palmer and Le Cornell and Verdelay. But there's a lot of interest on the West Coast for those varieties because they're looking for something that will live. <laughs> they, I mean, they want to yeah. make a quality wine, but it has to live. They've got to do has both to live, things. Yeah. So, so oh, yeah. it just seems to be so. People come to me, so I mean, there's a lot of interest there for that reason. So, the the question arises though, and I've mentioned this on the program before. What's the people out there buying wine going to do when they walk up to the shelf and they see these? other varieties that they're not familiar with? Are they going to search for the Cabernet or are they going to give it a try? I think it'll depend on the demographics of who's buying it. I think the older generation, they they have been taught that they want to have Cabernet Sauvignon. So it's going to be hard for this, for them to change. So they're going, they're, they'll, they'll keep buying what they're buying, but there'll be less of it because you won't be able to grow as much of it. So that wine that went for 20 bucks a bottle will start going for 40 bucks a bottle. So the question is, is, like you say, do I buy half the amount of wine or do I try a Le Cornell or a Palmer that might taste <laughs> a little bit like a seven year? So it's, it's, I mean, and I think when it comes to the younger generation, they, they want like pet nats, peacats, very wild fruity wine. So they tend to like, like the Labruscas and Native American grape rice. So like at the winery I work at, which is uh, Deer Native Grapes, they make pet nets and they make wines out of Catawba, Delaware, and they're like big, juicy, very flavorful, very floral reds and whites. So they do it that way. And the younger and people who are just getting into the wine market, that's what they want. They don't want Cabernet Sauvignon. They don't want Chardonnay. They want these like wild things. And also, too, I'm seeing a merging of how people are making beer. The same kind of thing. They're looking for like wild flavors and Brett flavors and pineapples and like guavas and passion fruit. I mean, you used to never see things like that in beer, but you're seeing that now. So you're seeing like these hazy IPAs, which are, have lots of fruit in them, and then you're mm-hmm. seeing nets, which are hazy, that have lots of like Native American fruits in them. So I'm seeing like a merging of the kinds of wines that are being made as the same kinds of things that are beers that are being made. So you're seeing that way. So to kind of go back to your question, I think the younger generation, they don't, care that it's a, a Cabernet Sauvignon or not, or if it's a Chardonnay or not. So they want something that's fun and different. And if, it, and if it's at the right price point and they like the taste, they'll buy it. Uh, I, I think you're, you're, you're going to see that. So, but, so I think they're, they're doing that. And I think people on the West Coast realize that too, is like you have to have a good quality wine. So what they'll do is they won't say it's a Bacchanal Noir. They'll say it's, Summit Red. They'll just give it a generic name, and yeah. they won't say that it's a Bacchus Noir. They won't do it that way. And just so you know, up until like say the 1970s, it was mostly Robert Mondavi who really pushed that. It used to be California made mostly blended red wines, so they oh, would yeah. call it Burgundy, yeah. and they would call it like you know Hardy Burgundy. They would call you know uh, Chablis. Like they would that. do it that way. Generic. And then yeah. and, and and then. Robin, but I was the one who says, oh, no, we have to be pure. We have to have a Cabernet Sauvignon with 100% Cabernet Sauvignon, um, and that's it. But understand, like in France, 
they don't make wines with 100% Cabernet Sauvignon. So it's actually it's actually an outlier that California went the way it did was like where you had wines that were like made out of like a grape variety and there was like no tolerance for any blending. So in California, I think it's something like 95% or 100% of the grape has to be the same one. So if you have a Cabernet Sauvignon, it has to be, and I'm not 100% sure, but I think it's between 95 and 100% of that grape variety to be called a Cabernet Sauvignon. And I think what's going to happen is, is that because of the economics, is like people, I think, want more approachable wines. They want blended wines like you see in France. So I think when it comes to if the grape varieties that I'm hoping will do well on the West Coast, like Baco Noir and Burden and Palmer, there'll be blended reds that will have like a proprietary name, whether, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, that's a you know, point so, you will be Ron Hunt Red. It'll be, you know, Ron Hunt Red. Be, I like it. Yeah, whatever you want to call it, like, yeah, Hunt Red, and just do it that way, Hunt White, Hunt whatever. So, and it won't say, like, what kind of grape fries, you know, it'll just be a blend of Bacanoir and Palmer and Le Cornell. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, you, you brought up a point there that is interesting because a lot of the recent articles I have read have talked about the boomers, the older generation, that is the ones that are buying the wine right now. And the younger ones are getting away from it. And it could very well be because of what you were just mentioned. They're looking for a variety. They're looking for something different. They're looking for something fruity. Whereas the older generation, as the ones that are stuck on the Cabernet Sauvignon and the Pinot Noirs and the, uh, you know, all, all the classics. And that could be an explanation for the decline in young people because they're not finding that variety that uh it's like fun and juicy and big i mean i think yeah. the older generation they were i mean it took a long time for the wine Jesus, but they spent a lot of time teaching them and convincing them that like you want to drink a cabernet sauvignon that's all you want to drink personally i'm not a big cabernet sauvignon per person because they tend to be really i mean particularly the ones from california because they have like 16 percent alcohol they taste oh, yeah. like they're, 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 they're like too big. big, heavy things that have charcoal and prunes in them. And they're mm-hmm. fine if you like that. I tend not to like that. I tend to like Pinot Noirs, Bacos, lighter, approachable reds. So, but I think when it comes to, like, the California reds, the, the old generation, they, the ones you spend a lot of time teaching them, saying that if, if you're in the right set and you're in the smart set, You've got to drink a Cabernet Sauvignon, and you've got mm-hmm. to have a big, inky thing that's going to have 60% alcohol and do it that way. And if you've got a Chardonnay, not a clean thing that's got, like, green apples, that you've got to have a big, huge, buttery one that's, like, a 14% alcohol. So, yep. and, and then if you don't drink that, or if you're out in dinner and you want something light and they offer you this other one, you can say, well, this guy doesn't know anything because he's trying to buy something other than what he should be buying, which is the big, you know, oaky Chardonnay or the yeah. big inky kind of a set, Cabernet Sauvignon. So it took a while to do that, but I think the young generation is like, I don't want to do that. So I think you're you're going to see a changing that way. I think in some respect, but but I think it took a long time for people to be taught, and I think there's wine shame. I mean, I do a lot of wine appreciation classes, and I can't tell you the times people are afraid to order 
the wine they want because they're like, oh, what will they think of me and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I'm, what I tell people is like, look at beer like wine. When you buy a beer, you don't say, um, I wonder what they're going to think of me or how bad they'll think of me if I buy this kind of beer. They don't think that way with beer, but with wine they do. So, nice. so, so there is a there is a wine shame out there, but I think the economics will get around that. So if climate change, which is occurring, I mean, whether for whatever reason, I'm not going to go into those kind of things, but it is occurring. Those wines that you were buying now for twenty and thirty bucks a bottle, if they start going for sixty bucks a bottle, people will start changing their mind. Or yeah. with demographics, they'll be dying off. So it won't matter. So. Yeah, I'm. I'm part of that older generation that was taught. Yeah, I'm, I'm the one that died like. off too. So yeah, I'm the pterodactyl. Yeah. So yeah, we're, I'm, I'm not saying you are, I'm saying I am. Oh, yeah, I am, yeah. And, yeah, we're and, dying and I was taught exactly. the same way. You know, you got to yeah. like a Cabernet. The Merlots need to be big and bold and, and, and all that. And I was, that was my original introduction to wine was stuff like that, you know. Yeah. And if you don't and, do that, you're a zero. You're a nothing. Yeah, so, you don't know again, anything about like, wine. When you're in France, I mean, like, Except for certain areas of Bordeaux, like say Saint Emilion or Pomerol, they're mostly blends. They have, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot and Petit Verdot and Malbec and Cabernet Franc, and they have all those kinds of things in them. But rarely do you see um, varietals of Merlot in France, but you see them here. And I like Merlots, but the thing is, like, they're kind of they have. if you if you blend them, then they're a lot better. I think they'll have more of a nose, they'll more have a more finish, so you can do it that way. So, but I mean, for the longest time, it's like they all had to be varietal. They, when I say varietal, they had to be Merlot wines that were made out of just Merlot. So, and I think you're seeing people get around that. But it took a long time to convince people to do it. So the wine list is that you can get a Merlot, or you can get a Cabernet Sauvignon, and if you want something else. Uh, we don't sell that. So just like just don't, yeah. buck up, buy what we're going to sell you. Well, you know, I think that's the reason you're seeing a lot of the uh, Merlots and Cabernets and all that from different countries all around the world because they're sold to the United States, and that's it because mm-hmm. of the that reason on there. I got one question to ask you before we um, uh, before we finish here: the new labeling of ingredients in wine. What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. I'm not that familiar with it. I mean, I, I work at commercial <laughs> wineries and I make the wines, but that's a regulatory thing as far as what, what the thing is. But I think it's like, I think it's like whether you add sugar or not, I think, and like acids. No, it's, just, is it, it's the is list it of, it's, it's crazy, I think. I mean, you know, if I may editorialize mm-hmm. for a moment here, I think it's insane. Um, you know, how can you list? Because there's so many, so many different trace chemicals in a glass of wine. And where are you going to draw the line and what are you going to do? Uh, but, yeah, you know, there's there's a movement to get, if not listed on the label, at least a QR uh, so code so you can scan it and it listed there. But, um mm-hmm. I just wonder if you had any opinion of it. Yeah, I, I've, I've heard of it, but I didn't know exactly the, the details of it. And the, the people who run the winery, they think about that. So it's like down the line. So I, I don't yeah. really have an opinion because I'm not that familiar with that proposal. So, But as far as like whether you're adding sugar or not, I mean, in France, they add sugar. They got a bad year. 
you add sugar. It's like a natural material that you put in the wine. So I think if you list all those things, that diminishes the perceived quality of that, that variety. So I, think so so I probably would yeah. be excited about that, I would think. so. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Mike, do you have any questions for Stephen before we uh, say goodnight to him? Uh, let me check real quick, make sure there's nobody chiming in at the last second. I don't have anything right now. Uh, just appreciate it. And it was a very interesting um, discussion. Uh, I had I did have to look up uh, spell Chung Buck Do. And I got to say, it's a, it's a lovely part of the country, and it's like, I mean, it's yeah. it's a it's a fun, really, and the the people are very nice. It's really it's really it's a pretty pretty area of the world, and I just I mean I if you ever can get there, it's it's a it's a beautiful area. It really is. Where is it located? North like South to Very quickly, it's just like just to plug the book a little bit. If you want to buy the book, yeah. you can go to I mean the the grapes of uh, the grapes thoughts of Valley book, and also the grapes thoughts of Valley book. It includes two other grape varieties, including the two new chapters that has grapes that are developed in the New England area. So, but you can either get it on Amazon or through the book publisher, and the name of the book publisher is Flint Mine Press. So it'll be www Flint Mine Press. So if you could buy a book or do whatever, and I say buy for your friends, buy for your enemies, just buy the book. That's what I say. So, 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 so it's kind of fun that way. And also, too, what I try to do is, like, it's a book that's made for grape growers, but also winemakers, but also a consumer. So it gives a lot of descriptions of grapes like Chardonnay and Merlot, like – you know, it'll say, like, you can make them in this style or that style. Same thing with Save Valley. You can make them in this style, that style. So it's actually a good book for consumers who want to know what a Vidal is like, what a Chardonnay is like. Um, oh, and also go. from a winemaker standpoint, like, you have an idea of what those grapes are like. So if you want to make blends, you know how you can make different blends. So it, it does oh. that. So so if any of your readers have any interest in that and want to buy the book, that would be that would be great. So thank you. Okay. Where is the town in Korea. Where is it located? North, south, east, west, in the ocean? What? Oh, Yongdong is, is one of the areas that it's there. So, yeah, so Yongdong. And that's and the that, county government there. So. And that's where from Seoul? What direction? Oh, that's probably maybe a hundred and maybe a hundred and fifty miles south of Seoul. So it's oh, like okay. right in the dead center of the country. Okay. Okay, so, I was trying to get it. And, and, uh, and I think it's about, like, it's like two hours by train. So the trains there are really, I mean, basically, they go so fast. Like, when they go by, they go by really silently. And, like, they go so fast that, like, the rails sing because they're going, like, 200 miles an hour. So, like, <laughs> when you get on the train and you see, like, you know, a telephone pole. Like, and I take Amtrak. I like Amtrak. I go up to Hudson River all the time. Lovely rides, that kind of stuff. But when you see the, you know, the, the telephone pole, it's like, Here's a pole. Here's a pole. Here's a pole. When you're uh-huh. on these Korean trains, you see poles and they blur. It's like pole, 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 pole. pole. You can tell like you are going fast, like you have never gone before. So like a they're clean, they're fast, they're like. But I was like, wow, this is going fast, you know. And then when I came back to the U.S., I was like, wow, I mean, we were going like 80. I was like, wow, we're going as fast as we can. There is like 200. 220, and you are flying. I mean, yeah, you just see a blur of stuff going by you. So, so it's kind of fun that way. So there is a direct stop from Young Dung that will then bring you up to Seoul. So. Oh, okay. So it's just, it's just south of uh, south of Seoul. All right. Uh, well, Stephen, 
thank you so very much for joining us tonight. It was very educational. I, I'm fascinated by the by Korean grapes. I will get the book, so we'll be sure to you know send yep, me an email sure about that. Mm-hmm. And also a reminder: send me an email about the uh, other couple you suggested that might be uh, good yep, guests. I'll do that right right after this is over. I'll. I'll send it off to you, and then that will be good. So, okay? All right. And I'll get a hold of them. And if you talk to them often, tell them that I'll be contacting them. So, okay. very good. What I'll do is I'll I'll write an email to you, and then I'll carbon copy them in so you can all talk to each other and stuff like that. Oh. Delight, delightful, delightful family. So, and they're, they're oh, doing good. some fun stuff. So, and again, they're younger, so they're doing the hip stuff, so it's kind of fun. So That should be interesting. Yeah, I would look forward to talking with them. So, thank you for taking the time tonight and talking with us. It was really enjoyable. And uh, maybe sometime in the future, uh, we can get you on again and continue talking about your your books and the American Native Grapes. Sure, I'd be happy to do that for you. And, and thank you very much. Well, thank you. And good night. Now. Okay, okay, have a good night now. Okay, bye-bye. Uh-huh. Bye. Okay. Yep. Flint Mine Press. That's a good, good website. And his book is on there. What, what is it? All right. Uh, Flint Mine, M-I-N-E, Press. Oh, Flint Mine Press. Yeah. Okay. Uh, publisher that's that's uh, for the one of New York, right? Uh, yes. It, uh, God, yeah. It's just on there. And just, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's down uh, – I was looking for it, and I couldn't find it. And then I got down around the – near the bottom of the page. There's a giant banner for it. <laughs> it's Grapes of the Hudson Valley. <laughs> It fills my screen here, so it's pretty cool. Uh, updated second edition features uh, 19th century New England grape breeders and heritage varietals, uh, and it is uh, there is an order button there. So check it out. It's uh, Grapes of the Hudson Valley, and uh, yeah. there's other authors on there, but he has quite a bit uh, quite a bit of a banner uh, there. So yeah, really that cool. sounds sounds like it'd, yeah. it'd be an interesting yeah. book. I'll have to see what mm-hmm. I can do about that. Yeah. All right. Well, a, very um, interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, let me update that. And we are closing down the show for now. We'll be back next week. That's uh, February 22nd, 7 p.m. Eastern Time live. Okay. And we have I a guest have then. Yeah. Yeah. We have another guest. So yeah. uh, stay tuned for that. We'll tell you who it is and more information. So. Uh, thank you very much. We can. Yeah, we can thanks have. for listening. Be sure to tune in to Flightline Radio every Saturday from 10 to noon. Listen to Mike live, but anytime it's streaming. And so yeah. uh, Flightline dot, FlightlineRadio.com. Yeah. Oh, and, uh, and we're also on uh, MyTuner, uh, MyTuner uh, radio app. Uh, we just got listed on there, and oh, we've really? got the listeners of... Yeah, they bumped up uh, like overnight. As soon as they said, oh, confirmed, you're on our you know list and you're on our app and all that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah. I got up the next day. It's like, whoa, <laughs> okay. So uh, Very good. it means a lot. Yes. Listen through that app, listen through our own app, uh, whatever, whatever. But, uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, so uh, appreciate the yeah. shout-out. Good. Again. Sure. So uh, next uh, – thank you. Yeah. Next week, we'll uh, see you all. Have a good week.
Be safe. Thank you. This concludes tonight's broadcast of All About Wine with your host, Ron. For show information, links to All About Wine on Twitter and Facebook, or to be a guest on this show, visit the show website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com. Archived shows are available for download on iTunes or on our show page at blogtalkradio.com forward slash allaboutwine. Thank you for listening. Drink responsibly, and we'll see you next time on All About Wine. That's it. Green room. Okay.